KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. What the pandemic has taught San Diego about public health. We have another crisis going on. The homeless crisis we're beginning to see. The mental health crisis we're beginning to see. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. This year's county budget is funding ongoing pandemic recovery. But we also are you know, doubling down on a number of programs that I think have been um, too long overdue. A Carlsbad resident is the first indigenous woman to be appointed to the state women's commission. And we'll hear how songs and stories help increase Latino vaccination rates. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. Even with vaccination rates climbing, the battle against COVID-19 goes on. Los Angeles has just seen a spike in cases fueled by the Delta variant, and hospitalization rates among Black Angelinos have also been on the rise. The pandemic continues to reveal gaps and inequalities in our critical care system. Advocates who have long been calling for increased funding for public health departments say now is the time to seize on an influx of pandemic funding because it won't be there forever. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman spoke about this with San Diego County Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten and Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Machione. Pre-pandemic, I mean, would you guys say that you guys were underfunded by the state or what was it like before the pandemic even happened? Well, absolutely. All health departments across the nation before the pandemic. And it things differ from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, but in general, uh, the topic of uh, the underfunding of public health is decades old. Tragically, public health funding is more episodic. It is when, when there's a crisis, then funding will flow versus using our adage in public health prevention, investing the dollars and building the infrastructure. I don't think there's any community across this country that would say they have the adequacy of their public health infrastructure. And like, what's like the real world impact on that? Like, like pre-pandemic, like, is there some things that you guys can't do that you wanted to do? Or like, how, is it, how does that budget um, not increasing affect your guys' ability to control public health in the county? You know, we're different in San Diego in that we take a very holistic approach to the well-being of the 3.4 million. So we look at the social drivers for health. We'll look at the issues around housing and public health. We'll look at more recently in harm reduction, the interplace between behavioral health and public health. And so we're an integrated in terms of how we operate, but how we bring our community together. Unfortunately, when you talk about public health funding, uh, it's the fidelity to the public health topic. So the funding streams come, but it's focused on dealing with Ebola, or it's focused on childhood obesity, or lead poisoning. And, and the reality is all these things kind of come together in a community. 
And so we have to harmonize the funding on all these sources and then look where there's gaps and kind of go after funding. And, and that's just the sad reality of how public health operates in this country. And then you talk about like um, kind of funding being like reactive. So then the, the, the pandemic hits, and I know Supervisor Fletcher was talking about like the, the county's in a good financial position, but that they might have had to spend a ton, a ton of money, which you guys did spend a ton of money. But like, what, what was the influx of cash that eventually came to you guys? I mean, were you worried that there wasn't going to be this like influx of cash? And then when you did it, when you got that money, was that to pay existing bills? Was that to build more infrastructure? Or kind of how did that work? Uh, this county is financially healthy and, and strong. Uh, and the funds weren't coming down yet from the state. So our charge, and we gave to our team, was do what's right to protect the public's health. Now, when we stood up T3, if you remember, that was the... Tracing, I can't remember. You know, you almost got it, right? <laughs> Testing, tracing, and treating, right? That was, uh, from the stimulus money, that was over $100 million. And that's, it is far exceeded, because then we did vaccinations, right? So the idea here was, had we not made the investment, we would have had far worse outcomes, I think, in our county for sure, but across the, the country, or our state, I should say. And so we, we quickly realized that we had to not just get the type of resources, Matt, but they had to be in the right investment for the right interventions, because timing was critical. And then you guys had a big, big scale up, I mean, not only in terms of like hiring staff, like we talked about contact tracers, doing these testing sites, doing the vaccination sites, which came later. But I remember we were talking too about you guys were trying, when, when the testing push was going on, didn't have the infrastructure to, to do all the testing and there was a backlog on the equipment for that. So it seems like you guys have scaled up quite a bit. Are you guys on a scale down now in terms of shrinking back? Or Because I know um, that the American Rescue Plan was passed, which gave some more dollars for you guys. And some people say that, you know, that, that, that the health departments are doing fine now, but are you guys going to be scaling back down operations? Or is there a hope that you can keep you know, uh, at a higher level of, of staffing and all that? Or how does that kind of play out? Well, we've, we're scaling down uh, based on the need. It's not just uh, a process that is uh, arbitrary. Looking at the data, our total number of daily cases and our case rate uh, is, are coming down. So we are looking at the staffing that's involved. How can those staff now go back to their prior uh, responsibilities? But also, how can we glide slope testing and vaccinations back to our public health centers? Uh, but we address the needs that are in front of us, and that way we can decrease the number of staffing involved, decrease the number of locations where testing and vaccinations uh, would be required. Yeah, just to give another example to that. Our county nurses were the ones, the very first uh, testing was our county nurses. Uh, right out of Rosecrans, and you saw it when we went up to the old Qualcomm site, and then we really developed the whole ecosystem, right, of the testing, and then the same group that was doing vaccinations. Well, we have another crisis going on now. The homeless crisis we're beginning to see. The mental health crisis we're beginning to see. This is the consequences of the, of the pandemic. And so it's, it's not that we're scaling, glide sloping down and correct to the need. It is also because we need to then reallocate those nurses to help on homelessness, those ho nurses to help with those children and in-home in visits that we need to get back to. There's other needs that were put on pause and then other things that are beginning to rise, unfortunately. And so we're, again, where public health goes into action is where the need is immediately shifting. 
those resources there. And I know some people say um, that like now is like a better time than ever for these health departments to try to ask for funding. Do you guys think that that's the case? Or do you think like you have a window of opportunity now to whether that's changed, you know, state lawmakers' minds or federal lawmakers' minds? I know you guys have a lobbying arm here at the county, but do you think like now is the, is the opportunity, so to speak, or what do you guys think? Oh, absolutely now is the opportunity, and there's a lot of effort going on at the national as well as the state uh, level to look at the future of public health. And then, uh, this might not be an easy answer, but what's, what's the best case scenario? Like, you know, uh, the, the governor says, here's a blank check, what do you need? I mean, what, what, what would you guys ask for, what do you need? If, if we had the blank check, we would both agree that it's really, really the social drivers, the social determinants of health. You know, we, we're ending a pandemic with COVID-19, but there's another pandemic we've been dealing with, and that's the health inequities. And it is a pandemic. And, and COVID-19 just put the shine, the light on it to see how different parts of our county, different parts of our state, different parts of our nation were living, and some of them were not living well. And it's no surprise when you have overcrowding or people that were not in any type of shelter. It was no surprise when people did not have uh, food security or a job, and therefore, if they were sick, had to go to work or were felt forced to go to work because they had no ability to take care of their family. And those were enablers, um, unfortunately, of spread, of viral spread. So when we really want to look at a root cause, if you really want to um, address uh, some of the things we keep talking about and having people live longer and happier and healthier lives, it's those social determinants. So it's housing. It's helping people with jobs. So those are things that you don't think about in the realm of public health, but if you were to address that, you would really improve the public's health. And the only other question I have is, do you think that like, whether it be like we were talking about state lawmakers, the federal government, do you think they'll be receptive to the calls for more funding? I mean, it sounds like the call's been going on for a long time and there's been no response. But like you said, after 9-11, a lot of stuff changed. Do you think that they'll be receptive to your messaging? Well, I can't say that there's been no response because about a year and a half ago, the state did allocate uh, funding to jurisdictions to support public health needs, infrastructural needs. So that was about a year and a half, two years ago. Again, right now, what the governor is doing is evaluating what the needs are, which I think is a practical uh, uh, next step. But we want to see outcomes from that and funding allocated to uh, specific public health needs uh, after the assessment is completed. Yeah, I don't think there's any way going back. Uh, when, when, and, I, and I really applaud the governor when, through the administration, released the Healthy Places Index in the summer. And that is a difficult conversation to have in the midst of a pandemic to say, and these are areas where people historically have not been thriving. And they did that with the intent of, we have to race and go in those areas. Now, fortunately for us, we were already going in those areas the South Bay saturation strategy for testing and what we're already moving eventually into, into vaccination. But now we have that on the table. And so that's gonna be an ongoing conversation. And you know, we have an old adage, you can only live well when you all live well. And so if parts of our county are not living well, there's no other way you're gonna live well because if there's an outbreak here, it impacts here. So I think now with the Healthy Places Index and talking about health equity and how this Board of Supervisors has embraced racism as a public health crisis and health equity, the heart of that, at least in San Diego, second largest county in the, in the state, is going to continue to elevate that to the, you know, to the state itself. And I don't think we're alone. 
That was San Diego County Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Machione and Health Officer Dr. Wilma Wooten speaking with KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman. San Diego County Supervisors approved a $7.2 billion budget last week. It includes funding for public health, mental health services, and the pandemic recovery. This year, the county budget also includes more than half a billion dollars it received in federal aid. KPBS reporter Andrew Bowen spoke with County Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer to discuss what's in the county's budget and why. This is the first budget the county has approved since the Board of Supervisors became majority Democrat. Of course, you're a part of that Democratic majority. How do you see that new political dynamic reflected in the county's spending? It's a night and day. Uh, We uh, have a a budget for the first time in a generation that really looks to invest in San Diego families, San Diego communities, San Diego businesses, to be there for our community when our community needs the county the most, um, and looking at all the places and ways uh, that we can support our economy locally, uh, get back on track um, in the wake of the pandemic, as well as address the the massive um, health impacts of the pandemic. The county's Health and Human Services Agency makes up the largest portion of the budget, and it always does. And it also saw the largest increase compared to the original budget proposal from about two months ago. Where is all of this new money going? So there's a number of initiatives. Um, so obviously our first priority um, it remains addressing the pandemic. Um, you know, we still have to continue our vaccination efforts, um, but there's also a number of businesses and, and renters and landlords and workers whose uh, economic lives have been really devastated over the last uh, 15, 16 months. Um, So we have a lot of programs to help working families, to help businesses get back on their feet, including a small business stimulus grant program and rental assistance, food assistance, you know, just a range of of really vital programs uh, to help out our community at at this difficult time. But we also are, you know, doubling down on a number of programs that I think have been um, too long overdue. Uh, One of them is um, the mobile crisis response teams, which uh, looks to bring an alternative to armed law enforcement. Uh, When you have a a homeless person or someone experiencing a mental health crisis, we know that uh, when you you call armed law enforcement too often, the results are really tragic in those circumstances. So we've uh, rolled out something called the mobile crisis response teams so that we have an alternative to armed law enforcement in those kinds of situations. Uh, We're also looking at increasing investments in our foster care system and foster youth and supporting uh, as well our homeless population and our unhoused population to get the services and support that they need to get back on their feet. Um, so, So we're really looking at how we invest in addressing some of the root causes of the challenges that um, a lot of people for far too long have experienced in San Diego County. And, um, you know, now we finally have a chance to, to turn things around. KPBS spoke recently with County Public Health Officer Wilma Wooten and the Health and Human Services Agency Director Nick Maschione, and they said that public health departments across the nation have been underfunded for decades. Now, in light of the county's experience with COVID-19, will the increased funding for public health be ongoing and is it sustainable? Uh, Most of the, I think, most vital increases in our uh, public health funding are going to be sustainable. I mean, there's certainly some portion that is uh, 
looking to cover these uh, one-time expenses for, for COVID. Uh, and most of that's been covered by funds received uh, from the federal government. Uh, but in terms of our, our ongoing investment, you know, this is certainly one of my priorities. I know it's a priority of my colleagues on the board, and um, there's there's definitely funding throughout the budget that are that's long-term investments. And you know, there's nothing that is a better demonstration of a long-term investment than when you you hire people who are going to be around to do the job to serve our community. So we have hundreds of new uh, positions in mental health, behavioral health, public health, and in, in the kinds of jobs that are on the front lines of any kind of future pandemic response. And so this is a long-term staffing investment to ensure that we have the uh, resources, the people, the expertise in-house um, to better serve our community. The county received more than half a billion dollars from President Biden's American Rescue Plan Act. But the county didn't even spend all of the money that it had budgeted for in the last fiscal year. There's a sort of carryover balance that you're including in this next fiscal year's budget. Did the county really need this big infusion of cash from the federal government? Well, I'm talking to constituents day in, day out, and people, you know, people are hurting. Um, one of the things I'm most proud of in this budget is our small business stimulus grants program. Um, and I'll tell you, out in my community, um, there are just so many businesses who've put their life savings into starting starting their business and we're doing well, uh, but just getting by and the pandemic has just put them underwater. Um, and being able to help these small businesses that are really the linchpin of our local economy get back on their feet is absolutely vital. I don't think anyone would ever say that, that, that we don't need those resources. I mean, similarly, I've been speaking to landlords whose tenants haven't been able to pay rent and tenants who haven't been able to pay rent because they've lost jobs and livelihoods or family members due to COVID. And the, the resources that we have received from the federal government are absolutely vital to helping those people um, as well uh, get back on their feet so that uh, as we come out of COVID on the other side, that we can move forward um, and leave this really dark time behind us and not, you know, not be pulled down in debt for the rest of people's lives. Uh, so I think on the economic front, there's no doubt that it's been incredibly important. Um, also, there's a lot, a huge need um, that's been revealed and, and exists in our community for a long time, but, you know, became really real to many families um, during COVID of the need for better support for childcare and childcare for working families and childcare for working moms in particular. Um, so that's another place that we're gonna be, invent that this budget um, really doubles down and invests. Uh, so in my opinion, I, I mean, honestly, I, I wish we could do more. You know, I think the budget, the budget does a, a good job, but you know, we have a lot of needs in our community and a need to invest in order to uh, grow our economy and also you know, address some of the deep inequities and injustices that people have experienced. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria faced backlash from some progressives for his increase to the city's police budget. Now, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department has an even bigger budget than the city's police department, and the sheriff's budget is also going up. Why does the sheriff's department need more money? From my point of view, um, you know, taking a careful look at the sheriff's budget and looking to right-size that budget um, in the future is a, is a top priority. This, uh, this increase is important because it's an investment in particularly mental and behavioral health uh, workers and nurses for our county jails, which have been radically understaffed for a very long time. Certainly one of my priorities, I think the priorities I share with my colleagues is to do everything we can to address these uh, terrible tragedies in our county jails um, that have 
resulted in large part because of understaffing and um, lack of adequate services. So the increased budget for the sheriffs is really looking at um, increasing the services in our county jails for um, mental health issues and to try to make sure that these tragedies don't happen again. Um, there's also some additional funds there um, for juvenile rehabilitation programs. And I, I know that as I think about you know, with the future of, of what I hope to see police and sheriff uh, department look like in San Diego County, you know, definitely increasing our support for alternatives to incarceration and juvenile um, rehabilitation in particular is a, is a big priority and, and those programs take resources. I've been speaking with San Diego County Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer. And Supervisor, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrew. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. For the first time, an Indigenous woman has been appointed to join California's Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. Jolie Proudfit is Luiseno Payam She has been Department Chair of American Indian Studies and Director of the California Indian Culture and Sovereignty Center at California State University San Marcos since 2008. And Professor Proudfit joins me now. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, first, what does it mean to you to have the opportunity to represent Indigenous women on this state commission? Well, anytime I have the opportunity to be in uplifting or amplify the voices of Native peoples, and in this case, Native women and girls, uh, it means so much. Uh, It means so much because you know, for so long and far too long, the invisibility and the erasure of Native peoples and especially Native women and girls has been the norm. And so I'm excited to not only have a seat at the table, but have an opportunity to work with other women to help shape policy to better the lives of all women in California. And for my focus, especially that of Indigenous women and girls. If you're confirmed by the state Senate, how do you see your role on the commission bringing attention to issues that impact Indigenous women and girls? Well, first and foremost, just having me present is bringing forward that we are still here, that we are visible, that we are present, that we are in many cases thriving, and other cases we have um, issues of inequities that we must address. But the fact that my very presence means that our existence is is key to being able to address the issues affecting Indigenous women and girls, and also to highlight um, and honor the resilience and the beauty and the successes of Indigenous women to share with others. So I just think my, you know, having me as a part of this commission is an opportunity to engage, to learn, to listen, Um, but ultimately make positive change for all of California's women, and especially that of Indigenous women and girls. You mentioned being able to raise awareness about the presence and the contributions of Native women and girls in the state. Can you tell me more about that? Yes, I think it's critical to not just focus on the inequities and what's wrong with um, the issues affecting Indigenous women and girls, but to amplify the native joy, the successes, the contributions of indigenous women. And there are many, 
we're leading in so many capacities in, in governance and leadership. We have Deb Hallen now, who's the first Indigenous person to have a cabinet level appointment. She's our Secretary of the Interior. We have Indigenous women who are leaders in all areas of tribal governance. We have Indigenous women who are leaders in education, in media arts, um, in uh, music, who are some who are on the New York Times bestsellers list, fashion. So I really want to showcase that as well, the contributions that Indigenous women, especially California Indian women, make to this great state and this economy, and as well as be able to address the inequities and the shortcomings so that all Indigenous women and girls have the opportunity to live their best lives. In, in addition to the joy and the contributions, there, there are also those inequities that you just mentioned. Uh, we know that COVID-19 has disproportionately impacted Indigenous people. How do you hope this commission can address the impacts of COVID-19 in Indigenous communities? Well, COVID-19 underscored those inequities that we know have long since been there. And those are economic those are healthcare, those are educational inequities. And so we have no excuse but to close the gap and make sure that all the women in California, and especially the first peoples of California, have the same opportunities to really live a self-determined life. And so I hope that we can really focus on making sure that we have the best quality health care for our women and girls, that we have the best opportunities for employment development, pay equity, you know, no native uh, female who wants to have a business should have any um, impediments to having a thriving business. And I firmly believe that education is a path, if not the path to self-determination. And so while we have, you know, the best uh, university systems on the planet, I believe here in California, the access and the opportunity has not been there for everyone equally. So let's make sure that our girls have the best experience K through 16 so that they can aspire and become whomever and whatever they want to do and be good contributing factors to their tribal communities, to the state and the world at large. You know, murder and sexual assault impact Indigenous women at higher rates than their non-Native counterparts, according to research. What are some of the priority issues impacting Indigenous women and girls that you want to address? Bringing attention to this issue is so critical because while we know the stats in Indian country and we have many amazing Native women and Native women organizations working to address these issues, we cannot do this alone. So we need to be working with our local law enforcement, our state agencies to address these issues of violence against women, perpetrators who in the majority happen to be non-Native, and as they come onto tribal lands, making sure that our Native women are addressed, and more importantly, making sure that our girls are having um, the opportunity to make sure that they have a lifestyle that is protecting them from ever experience these types of issues. So it's gonna take an all hands on deck approach and native women need all the help that they can get from our local partners to our local law enforcement, to our state agencies to help address these uh, issues of violence against uh, native women and girls. And, you know, we live in such a large state and having um, 
a close proximity to the border can create many, many issues. San Diego County is home to eight reservations, eight tribal nations. And so we can do better, we should do better. And if we all work together, then I think we can finally begin to tackle this issue of missing and murdered indigenous women and violence against native women. What are the biggest challenges to addressing some of these issues? In my experience, some of the biggest challenges has been that Indigenous women and girls have simply been an afterthought or not even on anyone's radar. So the fact that Governor Newsom has appointed me to finally serve on a commission such as this, the ability to bring representation and visibility to these issues is already a win in my mind. And I think bringing the visibility and bringing um, our issues um, to the forefront and making sure that we always have a seat at the table will help then address these issues. I've been speaking to CSU Professor Jolie Proudfit, who is the first Indigenous woman appointed to California's Commission on the Status of Women and Girls. Professor Proudfit, thank you so much for joining us and congratulations to you. Thank you so much. A national homelessness expert says San Diego needs to coordinate efforts among agencies and find more permanent housing solutions if it wants to see fewer unsheltered people on the streets. Those were two of 16 recommendations made after a six-month assessment by consultant Matthew Doherty. The report comes as San Diego's unsheltered population is once again increasing. Mayor Todd Gloria says some of the consultant's recommendations are already being implemented, or are included in the new city budget. Joining me is Matthew Doherty, former executive director of the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness and author of the new report on San Diego Homelessness Strategies. And Matthew, welcome to the program. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Mayor Gloria says he wanted a warts and all assessment from you on the city's approach to homelessness. So what are the warts? So I think the main thing the city needs to focus on is making sure it has enough in-house capacity and expertise to be able to help drive solutions to homelessness across the city. city needs to be able to do that work in partnership with the County of San Diego, with the San Diego Housing Commission, with the Regional Task Force on the Homeless. Uh, but historically, the city has not dedicated the staff resources with the level of experience and expertise needed to be not only just an equal partner, but a really a leading partner in driving progress on that work. So that's the, the fundamental finding was the need to scale up expertise and capacity within the city, which will then allow the city to help build strategies and programs that can drive progress on homelessness. You found that the city has relied too much on crisis management in its handling of homelessness. Can you explain what that means? What I really wanted to encourage was for the city to focus on balancing the immediate response to homelessness, which can be done through outreach, can be done through emergency shelter and other crisis services, to better balance that with a focus on helping people exit homelessness and get people connected to permanent housing solutions. Now, right now, a new homeless outreach effort in downtown San Diego is relying less on police and more on social workers and healthcare workers to make contact with unsheltered people. Is that part of your recommendation? That was one of my recommendations and worked with the partners to help think through the approach that was uh, launched last week. And do think that as, we, as we're trying to connect with people who are experiencing the crisis of homelessness, we need to lead with people who are skilled and trained and whose fundamental role is to 
engage with people, get to know them, help identify their challenges, help identify their goals, and help create pathways for people to pursue in order to get off the streets and into, into housing that they can sustain. But there's apparently concern among some homeless people themselves that there's an increase in violence and drug use on the streets because of a decreased law enforcement presence. Now, does that concern you? Absolutely. And public safety needs to be a fundamental priority in all of this work. And for law enforcement, public safety and ensuring the safety of people who are experiencing homelessness and addressing the safety of people who are working with people experiencing homelessness should be the fundamental role of law enforcement within the system is to focus on public safety while leaving the work of helping people exit homelessness and address their challenges, letting other professionals focus on that work. But public safety needs to be paramount and is a paramount concern for people who are experiencing homelessness themselves. One not surprising part of the report finds that we need more low-income housing available to decrease the homeless population. Any suggestions on how we make that happen? Well, I think one of the fortunate circumstances we're in right now is that there are a lot of new federal resources. And as soon as there's a state budget, an expectation that there'll be a lot of new state resources that can help create those opportunities. So the American Rescue Plan passed earlier this year provided resources that can be used to create permanent housing opportunities for people. Uh, The California budget will include a significant scaling up of resources into homelessness and housing programs. So right now, if the with a clarity of focus and vision and an emphasis on creating permanent housing options for people, right now is a good time because there are going to be resources that are available to make that happen. A lot of this report has to do with creating new city positions to coordinate homeless efforts. And some might see this as just creating new bureaucracy. How do you see a new department with new directors actually helping to make change on the city's streets? So and I completely understand that concern. I do think there's maybe a parallel with uh, you can't put a baseball team on the field and have five players and expect to be able to deliver what you want a baseball team to deliver. And I understand the Padres are doing pretty well this year. So really the goal here is to get the, the city up to a baseline of having an adequate team in place that can tackle the challenge that the community is facing. And what does that adequate team consist of? So my recommendations included um, adding three additional positions within the city department and converting an existing position into a new director of the department position. I do want to caution that that position is not is not thought of as a homelessness czar. It is a director of a strong team of professionals focused on ending homelessness. Also recommended the creation of a deputy director position with a special focus on interdepartmental partnerships and some of the external partnerships the city needs to develop and manage. Um, Another position explicitly focused on unsheltered homelessness and coordinating across all of the different agencies and actors who intersect with people who are experiencing unsheltered homelessness and a position overseeing the two teams within the department with the real goal of having enough senior staff who can be decision makers, who can represent the city in a wide variety of planning conversations, decision-making conversations, and make things happen. And you need enough people on the team in order to make those kinds of things happen and to actually start to have an impact on homelessness. How would you like to see San Diego's different city and county homeless agencies coordinate to become more effective? 
So this, I think, is another area in which there's just a great opportunity for the community. The San Diego Housing Commission has a, a team of staff with expertise and capacity. The Regional Task Force on the Homeless has been stood up in the last couple of years to play more meaningful roles across the region. The County of San Diego is, is creating its own office focused on homelessness and equitable communities. And this is the opportunity for the city to put forward its own team to, to partner across those other agencies. And together, I think that's just a great opportunity to have all of the right partners in place and to start to work together in a more coordinated, collaborative way and to move towards joint and shared decision-making so that each entity isn't making decisions in isolation, but actually are, are working together to get to the best decisions. During your time on the U.S. Interagency Council on Homelessness, have you seen other cities use the kinds of strategies that you've recommended to actually reduce homelessness? Yes. Um, and I think looking at the city, the city had one of the smallest teams focused on homelessness that I was familiar with, with and looking at other communities across the country. Other recommendations include a much stronger focus on data and using data to drive everyday decision making. So spelled out the kind of data that the mayor and his team should be focused on, on a continuous and ongoing basis. And the fundamental focus on everything we're doing should be leading people out of homelessness into permanent housing. And that shift to a true housing first focus is what has helped drive progress in other communities. I've been speaking with Matthew Doherty. He's author of the new report on San Diego homelessness strategies. And Matthew, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. About 36% of the eligible Latino population in San Diego County is still not vaccinated. In some Central Valley counties, it's much higher, at more than 60% unvaccinated. The numbers are even more dramatic for younger folks, especially teens and those in their 20s, and for indigenous farm workers. Now former U.S. Poet Laureate Juan Felipe Herrera, along with famed rancheras singer Carmen Cristina Moreno and other musical groups, are trying to get the word out through original songs, radio dramas, and poems in Spanish, English, and Mixteco. The California Report host Sasha Coca has more. Ponte la mascarilla, necesitas tu protección. No inhales el aliento de quien sin saber puede traer infección. Lava seguido tus manos con agua limpia y con jabón. You're hearing legendary ranchera singer Carmen Cristina Moreno. She's sometimes called the Chicana First Lady of Song. And she composed this piece as part of a project called Actavando Contra COVID. The idea is to boost vaccination rates in places like the Central Valley. And Carmen Cristina is just one of a number of musicians and poets and actors who've all created original work for this project, which includes videos on social media, broadcasts on Spanish-language radio, and live performances. Joining us to talk about the campaign is Amy Kitchener. She's the executive director of the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, and Hugo Morales, who's the executive director of Radio Bilingüe, the National Latino Public Radio Network. Hi, you guys. Hi. Hi, Sasha. 
Let's start with Juan Felipe Herrera. He's a famous poet from Fresno, and he's also the former poet laureate of the United States. And he wrote an original radio drama as part of this project. ¿Qué? ¿Qué? Despierta, Anacleta. Conmigo no se juega. Yo no necesito esas mascarillas de calceta. Soy de árbol, soy de fierro. Um, so we were we were just hearing the character Prudencio, uh, who's who's very. You know, he's really sure that he's so strong. He's strong like iron and like a tree. Like, he's not going to need the vaccine. And so, um, you know, he's arguing with his wife about how he's strong and he doesn't need this. You know, the story, it's it's so beautiful the way it weaves these different voices and characters in a family and different generations. Come on, Papi. La vacuna. Just a shot in the arm and a cool mask, Dad. Como Halloween. I love you, Papi. So let's talk about some of the musicians involved in this effort. You have a group from Bakersfield, Grupo Recreación Musical, uh, who are pretty well known for playing in the Mixteco community. They're very popular, um, especially at social dances. And, you know, one of their main forms is the chilena, you know, the archetypal social dance music of the Mixteca in Oaxaca. You cannot have a party without chilena music. And so Grupo, um, they have a pretty big following on YouTube, and there's also a lot of videos they've produced. They're from the hometown of San Juan Mistepec in the Huchlawaka district of Oaxaca. And that's a, a really big sending town of people um, here in the valley, especially. One of the communities that is most vulnerable to this uh, pandemic has been the indigenous community. Uh, many, um, Mishteko myself, many of my people are field workers. But many of us, including myself, were able to isolate in our home. Uh, most of these folks were not able to. I mean, none, frankly. I mean, the farm workers had to be out there, the essential workers, because they had to eat. They had to feed their families. They had to earn an income. Many of them are undocumented. So there was essentially no assistance for them. Those that are dying under the age of 50, which are numerous, are Mexican-Americans and indigenous people. The rather uh, uh, being audience. So it's not over for the essential workers. What are the messages that people are getting about why they shouldn't take the vaccine? Are there myths circulating in the community or... Is it really just this distrust uh, around the government? Well, I think it happens around, you know, the gossip, shall we say, and also in Facebook and other media like that. You know, unfortunately, it, it plays on, you know, the fears, et cetera. I mean, just an example, uh, the Bracero program, which expanded decades from the 40s up until the beginning of the 60s, part of the process of immigrating or crossing the border by these contract workers who lived in poverty and were forced to, I would, economically, to come to the U.S. when the U.S. was welcoming them, they were sprayed at the border with DDT, 
this fear of Western medicine and America is, is not just made up. You know, there's a history mm-hmm. there that is very mm-hmm. concrete. There's a lyric in a song by another group, Los Originarios del Plan, led by Leonel Mendoza, where they talk about exactly some of these concerns and really share the message that the vaccine is not going to hurt you. Hey, amigos de mi tierra, vengo a hacerle la propuesta. Vacúnense contra el COVID para no tener más sorpresas. There are an Arpa Grande group uh, from the Tierra Caliente in Michoacan uh, region of Mexico. But they, um, they live in Merced and Modesto. And when we talked about what kind of song would they compose for this, Leonel immediately said, oh, well, we should, we should use the form of a valona. Del oriente al occidente se vio morir mucha gente. Um, and I said, well, what's a valona? And he said, well, this is one of our traditional forms. It's like lyric poetry, and we use it for expressing social concerns. You know, he, he thought it was really important to use the very traditional form from his area because it was a way to call his community into action. You know, he said, when, when people hear the valona, they know I'm talking to them. ¿Te acuerdas, mi amor, cuando piscábamos fruta, manzanas, uva, fresa, luego algodón, betabel y coliflor? This was part of the performances that we did out at the Madeira no Flea Market on a Sunday a few weeks ago. Protégete contra la COVID-19-19 y lo de la mascarilla. It's dedicated to farm workers. Um, it's by, you know, Juan Felipe, who is the child of farm workers. And it's really a, like a love poem of spending so many years together, I want you to be by my side. And it's about the promises um, and the joys of family and community that await us if we can get vaccinated. No existe nada más fuerte que nuestra familia y nuestro amor. Hugo Morales of Radio Bilingüe, Amy Kitchener, Executive Director of the Alliance for California Traditional Arts, talking about their project Actavando Contra COVID. Thank you both. Well, thank you. Thank you, Sasha. Conquista el sol. Vacúnate. La salud. That was the California Report magazine host, Sasha Coca. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.